right, and we are rolling once again. We are exploring faith and pursuing grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass, and tonight we have a guest. We have Pastor Josh Scott. He is the pastor of Grace Point Church. Or is, is that right? Did I say that right, Josh? Yeah, Grace Point. Yeah, Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. We are really happy that you have taken time out of your schedule to join us on our uh, little podcast that we do here. Uh, we hope that it will be a blessing to others. So thank you for joining us, man. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. The reason why we asked you to be on the podcast or Kevin reached out to you is because uh, Grace Point is known in the Nashville community and in some other circles as being a grace-centered and grace-focused church, but it's also known for being a more progressive church. It promotes uh, what a lot of people refer to as a progressive form of Christianity, and that is a term that's off-putting to a lot of people, especially folks that are more conservative or who have more uh, conservative evangelical leanings. There's a lot of misconceptions out there as to what exactly progressive Christianity is. Uh, those those misconceptions run the gamut, and that's really what we're going to be discussing this evening is what progressive Christianity is, what it isn't, what it looks like, and how it is and can be in keeping with the Scriptures and how a high view of Scripture can be held within that and things of that nature. Um, but to get into this and to kind of kick off the conversation, there was an article that was written in the uh, Christian Post about you and about your church. And I figure we might just get started there. If you want to introduce yourself and then go into what that article constitutes, we'll just get it rolling, brother. Yeah. So my name is Josh. I've been a pastor for 20 years or maybe a little more. And I've been at Grace Point now for two years. And um, we're in a series in our community right now. We've been virtual since last March. Uh, we're in a series called What is Progressive Christianity? We've, we've had a lot of people join us over the quarantine time from all over the world. And so sometimes people would be like, hey, can we, what, what is this thing called? Like, we love this, but what is progressive Christianity? And so um, we try to, and we do this anyway, like every year we'll spend some time on it. So we're in that time of year where we are going to spend some time thinking about it. I gave a sermon on the Bible from a progressive Christian lens. Um, or from the progressive Christian lens that we have at Grace Point generally. And um, from that sermon, uh, there, there was sort of some things I said the Bible, I think the Bible isn't, is it? And then uh, there was a graphic created by, some, by uh, our staff and we put it out on social media. None of us had any idea that anything was going to happen with it. Like, like literally no clue. And then it just sort of exploded. Um, and um, about a couple days in, the, the Christian Post reached out and we had a conversation um, just about sort of what we were, what we were doing and, and what we were saying. And, um, you know, a, a good friend has told me many times that criticism is an opportunity to clarify your message. So I thought, you know, I mean, I know the Christian post, I know we're, we're coming from really different perspectives, but, um, why not take an opportunity to say like, no, here, here's what we're actually advocating or what we actually think. And, um, yeah, so that, that's how that ended up being out in the world. So what was it exactly, if you don't mind me asking, what was it exactly that the Christian Post took issue with? I know you mentioned that you had said something about the the Bible or the nature of the scriptures or inerrancy yep. or something to that effect. And I've looked at that article, but for the, uh, for the sake of our audience who maybe hasn't seen that article, what was it that they took issue with? Yeah, so I'll tell you sort of what, the, what they took issue with on the graphic, and then if it's okay, I'll tell you what I like. I nuanced a little bit in the sermon, but um, I, you know, no matter, I think no matter what I'd said, 
it wouldn't have mattered. The folks who were upset about the graphic and the point would have been upset about the point anyway. So um, essentially, a couple of things I said in the um, sermon is that I don't think the Bible is the quote-unquote word of God. Um, what I said in the sermon is I think that the Bible at times conveys the word of God, but I think taking the position that every word in scripture is the word of God really puts us in an awkward position defending some really indefensible things. But I do think that through the pages of scripture at times, the word of God comes to us through prophets, through Jesus, through, I, mean, I think there are places where we see the character and the goodness of God that, that come through. And then, uh, you know, I also said in the sermon and on the graphic that I, I don't think the Bible's inerrant and fallible. And that was sort of, um, uh, you know, enough, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. The number of people who've told me that there are, there, there's no such thing as progressive Christianity. And I keep going, but I am one. Like, we exist. <laughs> like, I'm here. We're real. I promise. <laughs> In flesh and blood. <laughs> And then the other thing is like, you don't like the Bible. You don't care about the Bible. And I'm like, that's actually not true. I've lived my entire, my entire life. Like I'm almost 40 and I can't remember a time the Bible was central to my life and even more so now. Um, so, so that sort of launched this whole thing of, um, and I told a friend the other day, like I thought in the New Testament, it says like, what it is to be a Christian is to confess that Jesus is Lord. And now I'm being told if I don't say the right thing about the Bible, I can't be a Christian. That just doesn't really add up to me. Yeah, that's one of the things that I often hear said and posited about progressive Christians is is it's a real common charge. Progressive Christians don't care about the Bible. Like you don't care about the Bible. You see, even you're saying that the Bible is not inerrant. How can you call yourself a Christian and the Bible you know, and consider the Bible to be anything but the inerrant word of God. I mean, that's a common charge that is that is levied about or levied against those that ascribe to a more progressive form of Christianity. But to what you just said just a minute ago, Josh, the Bible has always been a central part of your life. So how does that work in in your perspective with the Bible if it is not inerrant, if it is not the perfect, completely revealed will of God handed down to man, then how does the Bible function for you? What what kind of role does it play in, in your life if it's not inerrant? How does that work? Yeah, well, I'll just say, I you know, I read the Bible every day and not just for sermon preparation or to have something to say about it. I, I often read the Bible to see what it has to say to me um, because I often, I often um, am told things in those pages about what it means to be human and what it means to be faithful that are, are powerful. Uh, you know, I would say the the church existed for almost 300 years or more without a a canon, with, without a New Testament. So th this whole idea that you can't be Christian without a Bible. I mean, and not only, but even when the canon was was formed, it was still until you know the 1500s when the printing press was created and people could even begin to possibly get a. And even then, it was rare, right? Like so. This, I think what we have ended up doing in, as Christians in America in the 21st century is, uh, you know, we've assumed that just because we have Bibles everywhere, that that's always been the case. Um, yeah. and, and I think that it's very possible um, to, to value the Bible. And I'll just say this. I actually wrote a, a piece on my Substack today. I actually can make an argument that inerrancy is actually a low view of Scripture. Um, oh. Because I, I think inerrancy is us trying to fit the Bible into what we want it to be or hope it would be or need it would be. And what we miss in that process is actually what's going on in Scripture. 
and, yeah. and seeing our, our spiritual ancestors grow and change to see them in all their brilliance and all the ways they missed it. I mean, to me, it is absolutely um, compelling to see myself as part of a continuation of this tradition that began thousands of years ago um, and that people have never gotten it all right and that every one of us will enter that great cloud of witnesses unfinished, that we will yeah. not have figured it all out. We will not have it all nailed down, that there's still more to learn and, and sort of this idea that, well, now we've got the Bible and I mean, I'll just say this, if we could spend less time defending the Bible, like as inerrant and fallible and doing the mental gymnastics it takes, um, then can you imagine what we could do with that time as we engage and, and find out what our, what, what does this have to say to us? And then what is our response to it? How do we put that into flesh and blood in the world? Well, and, and Josh, I want to circle back around because I, I think that when someone hears the phrase, the Bible's not the word of God, or excuse me, not the word of God, but uh, but yeah, the Bible's not the word of God. Uh, if you use that phrase, and I actually use it, I think, in an episode a couple of weeks ago and, and got a little pushback from that. And it's, it's interesting to me because most people, they do not know how to define what they even mean when they say the Bible is the word of God. And I was having a, a conversation with an individual and they said, well, you don't believe the, the Bible's the word of God. I said, well, I believe the Bible contains the word of God and I believe it points us to Jesus, which is what the Bible is supposed to do. But when you look at passages, even like Matthew four, where you know, the, the author there records a conversation that Jesus is having with, with the devil. And it even says the devil said to Jesus, and then he quotes supposedly the devil, not the word of God. <laughs> People would look at that and go, well, yeah, well, 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 yeah, God didn't say that. The devil said that. Okay. So if, if the, the, devil said something in scripture, we would say that devil's the devil's word is not God's word. And so I think it's it's really this presupposition that people have been handed this prepackaged ideal of the Bible, and they really haven't even thought it through, that they've just been taught the Bible's the word of God, and, and they base pretty much everything on 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, and, and say, well, hey, that's what the Bible says. Well, what does all that mean? What, is, what yep. does God breathed actually mean? And it's not, it's instead of, as you pointed out, this idea of saying, well, look, it's just this perfect book. It harmonizes in everything. Every letter says the same thing, which is not true because oftentimes Paul gives different instructions to different churches. <laughs> and sometimes that instruction is completely different. Yep. It's it's literally the exact opposite. You know, don't be circumcised and I'm going to have someone circumcised. It's, it's So if you actually try to follow Paul, you'll find that there's a lot of conflicting information, not in the sense of being um, contradictory per se. It's simply that Paul is addressing different situations in different churches in different times. It's only a contradiction if we come to the Bible as a Christian constitution, which unfortunately yeah. many people do. And so I, I think that, you know, what you, what you said, it's ironic how people just blow things out of proportion because they assume they know what you meant instead of saying, well, what exactly did you mean by that? <laughs> sure. can, can you define that a little bit more for us? And so they don't ask those types of questions. And so I, I want to, to go back to this idea of even the phrase progressive Christianity, because man, that was like the, the boogeyman growing up. <laughs> when I heard progressive Christianity, I mean, that was, that was scary. I was literally conditioned to run anybody who claims to be progressive in any sense, which growing up in the churches of Christ, progressive to me meant someone 
attended a church who had a praise team. And for Lee, it meant somebody going to church who used multiple containers for the Lord's Supper. Um, <laughs> but it's it's this, once again, this prepackaged word that it means different things to different people. And so if you could just spend a little, little bit of time giving the perhaps kind of a broad spectrum of what progressive progressive Christianity is. It's, it's similar to the word conservative. It can mean a lot of different things to different people. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, completely. And you know, one of the things I try to always say is I can't speak for all progressive Christians. I can speak for me and, and how I'm trying to lead our community. I don't even necessarily get to speak for everybody in our community because there, you know, we have thinking human beings there who were maybe land differently on a specific issue. And I think you could find people who would consider themselves progressive Christians who take, you know, who would assume that certain things like certain miracles and that sort of thing were literal. And you can find on the other end of the spectrum, people who would say those are metaphorical and we should be looking for meaning, or you can find somebody in the middle of those two. So it, it is not just this, you know, this clump of people who all see things the same way. Um, what, what I typically will say to people is I believe that the very nature of the Christian tradition is inherently progressive. And what I mean by that is it is always expanding. It is always growing and it is always pulling us forward. And the story for me that comes up time and again is, is Acts chapter 10 when Jesus' disciple Peter is is uh, praying on the rooftop and he's hungry and he has this vision where a sheep gets dropped down. There's all sorts of unclean animals and a voice, the voice of God, we're told, tells Peter to get up, kill and eat. And Peter resists because he says, I've never, I've never done this. I've never touched an unclean thing. And then God says, don't call anything unclean that has been unclean. Well, uh, if you know the story, Peter goes to this guy, Cornelius, a Gentile's house. And while Peter is preaching there, the spirit falls just like it did on the Jewish followers of Jesus on Pentecost. It falls on the Gentile followers of Jesus these new Gentile followers of Jesus at Cornelius' house. And, and Peter sort of makes this recognition, the border. We thought there were these really strict boundaries and borders. And now we're being told that our boundary wasn't actually God's boundary. That God has actually, and, and that's the thing. I think people assume progressives are saying, well, this is how it always was. And then God changed God's mind. It's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is we've never been able to fully understand and right now do not and will not in my lifetime probably, or in, you know, if we ever could fully understand where we're being led. And so I would say for progressive Christians, we take seriously that when we learn, when we get better information, new information um, that is credible, that we adapt and, and open up our, our minds and open up our hearts and we, we adjust our, our faith and our practice accordingly. And I think you're seeing that happen in lots and lots of ways right now. Um, and so again, not every, maybe not every progressive Christian would say it like that, but I, I think the tradition is inherently progressive. It's inherently calling us forward to follow, to follow this, this, you know, the God who says to Abraham, you know, leave everything you've known, leave, leave your geographical and spiritual home. And, and go somewhere else or the God who called Moses to take off his shoes on holy ground and become a liberator, or the God who called the first Christians to uh, build these communities of hospitality and generosity and believe they could change the world. And I think we're very much a part of that. When I say the Bible, you know, the Bible, not just the Bible, the Christian tradition is living and active. I mean, it is always in flux because we're always hopefully learning and growing. And I believe that the same spirit that worked in them then is the same spirit who calls us forward now. Well, see, 
I, and I want to bring Lee in on something because um, you didn't sound like a progressive just describing all of that, at least not the way that I was taught to uh, to, to hear a progressive <laughs> because a progressive <laughs> Christian is supposed to, uh, you know, not talk about Moses in the Old Testament, not supposed to talk about Abraham or, or, the, or you know, any of those types of things. You're supposed to um, be cynical. You're supposed to be rude and hateful and, and you know, just just kind of want to go with the flow of what everybody else is doing. And I found that that's such a common representation, or should I say misrepresentation, of those who claim to be progressive Christians. But but something, and Lee, I want to kind of get you in on this because, Josh, you and I were talking earlier about how uh, we grew up in, in somewhat similar fundamentalist backgrounds, but Lee and I came from the Churches of Christ. And one of the big points that the Church of Christ always emphasized is that the whole Bible is a book of progression from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The whole story is God leading his people to progression. But the problem is, is that from from our perspective, or at least my perspective, and Lee, that's why I want to hear your commentary on this too. The way that I was raised in the Church of Christ is the whole Bible is progressive, but then it ends. But then it that's it. Like after after Revelation. That's it, because Jude 3 says that the faith has been once for all delivered, and that's it. So, you know, people have were fine with saying, yeah, from you know, we don't like the polygamy and the, the concubines, which is basically a sex, a sex slave, is what that is. Um, you know, we we don't like that. And so we're gonna say God was progressing through the times to 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 bring us to to a greater understanding. But then once Jesus came, that was it. There was no greater understanding. And, and and when I say no greater understanding than Jesus, I do believe that's the case. But they believe that there was there there should be no progression after that. Like after the first century, that's it. And you know there there's the, the scripture says what it says, and it means what it means. And it's it, there there's no way that we should try to apply that in our culture and day unless it's something that we don't like. And then for example, slavery. You know, most Christians today they have no problem saying that there was a trajectory from the old to the new and even the new Testament to now, they would say that there was a trajectory that progressed beyond scripture. But aside from slavery, that's about all Christians want to be progressive on, you know, they have no problem using that same logic that you just used to say that, Hey, the Bible is, is, is from God and we need to read it. We need to you know ask, what does it mean for us today? And Christians have no problem doing that and say, yeah, you know what? Paul told slaves, to obey their masters in the Old Testament. But today we know that 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 was a cultural thing and that today in our time that uh, a human should never even own another human. And people have no problem being progressive on, on certain issues. Lee, is that something that you found growing up in the Church of Christ too, that being a progressive wasn't bad as long as you weren't a progressive past the first century and viewing the Bible as a progressive book was completely scriptural, but it had no progressive application. Well, that's exactly been my experience. I mean, what you just described sums it up really, really well. And I think that that mentality towards, or that posture, I should say, towards Scripture is even more prevalent within the one-cup group, uh, simply because there's there's a whole lot more, uh, what's the word, it's, it's much more monolithic in its perspective, in its viewpoint, and its application. Um, to think 
consider progressive revelation as a thing is no big deal. And just like you said, you know, God is progressively revealing himself to mankind throughout history. We see his, you know, ultimate revelation in, in Jesus, in the culmination of, of God manifesting himself in the flesh in, in Christ, we see the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is the, the, the ultimate representation of God and who he is. And that's everything that, that God was progressing towards in what he revealed to those men who wrote those things down in those days of old and the prophets and everything else. But once we hit that point in the church is established in the book of Acts, well, there's no further progression. We have some of Paul's epistles in which some things are going to get lined out, but, but that's where the buck stops. There is no further progression past that point Unless you pick some pet things here and there like slavery, like polygamy and things of that sort. And what's so interesting to me, though, is that so much of that is culturally conditioned. And it seems like, at least at this point from where I am now, that that mentality towards Scripture, that posture towards Scripture is largely a really elaborate and sophisticated exercise and confirmation bias you know, we're, we're, it's almost like we're programmed to take, especially if you, if you come up fundamentalist, you take a fundamentalist perspective because that's what you have been taught. You, you have the Bible in front of you and you're taught, this is what the Bible is. This is what its function is. This is how it is to be read. This is how truth is elucidated from it. This is how we wrestle with the text and extrapolate things from the text. And we all have heard the term difficult passages, but I think if you come from a more fundamentalist background, Josh, like, like you said, you came from in your childhood and like Kevin and I have come from difficult passages for the most part are difficult, not because there's not a, a lot of context available for us to study, to get a better idea of what the intent of the author was or how the recipient of that letter or that book or that scroll or whatever would have received it. It's a difficult passage because it flies in the face of a preconceived notion that we held to before. And a lot of that has to do with a posture that we have towards the Bible. We view the Bible as the inerrant, perfect word of God that is free of contradiction, free of error. And then you get into some hairy into some hairy territory there. Whenever you start right. looking at these uh, these genocide passages, you look at God accommodating polygamy. You look at you know David, the, a man the after sun, God's own heart. The, uh, well, I was going to say you see the sun moving in Scripture. The sun rises yeah. and sets, and that's and they, and they didn't see that as figurative. They really believe that's what happened. And you can't yeah. blame them. I mean, that's the best information they had at the time. Um, but, you know, for me, one of the frustrating things is even on the issue of slavery, like if you go if you go back to the 1800s, you go back to the 1900s in this country, there were people who were still trying to do those gymnastics to make slavery oh, yeah. and segregation and owning other human beings. OK, and they're still doing it. I mean, you still have people. So, I mean, th this problem of what do we do with the Bible um, is, is an ongoing. And that's why I think this conversation matters. I think we need to be talking about. Um, not, not just as progressive, but as a Christian tradition, because I don't, you know, people can say all day long that progressives aren't Christians. I am one. Um, and the, the cool thing about life is you don't get to define other people. So I yes. assume that the people I disagree with, the Westboro Baptist people who I vehemently disagree with, they say they're Christians. So then we have to deal with them as a, as a, a branch of Christ, the Christian tradition, even if we don't like it. And I think this is a family discussion that we're obviously not all going to come down in the same place on, but it needs to be had because the Bible 
which for me at this point in my life is such a gift and um, I, I love sharing it has for a lot of people been weaponized and created deep, deep wounds that they have a lot of grief around. Well, Josh, I would like to ask you a question and I'm, I'm glad you just said what you said about how important the Bible is to you because you made the statement that, that as it relates to inerrancy, and this is what got the article going on, on the Christian post is that the Bible is not inerrant. And there, of course, there's more to it than that. There's more nuance to it, that it's not free of error, that it's not free of contradiction, all these other things. Well, those who come from a more fundamentalist perspective, as I know you're, you're familiar with, and Kevin and I are really familiar with it, is this idea, if the Bible is not perfect, as, as we ascribe it to perfect, that common understanding of what inerrancy is, if the Bible is not perfect, if it is not inerrant, then it is not trustworthy. And if it's not trustworthy, then why are we even reading it at all? Why are we studying it at all? How can it be the rule of faith and practice in our lives if it is not completely perfect from cover to cover? So the, the question I would like to ask you is, with your view of inerrancy and what the Bible is and what you do with it, I think this would be beneficial for our listeners. How would you say that you approach the Bible? What value does the Bible have for you if it doesn't check all of those boxes of being inerrant and perfect and infallible and, and things like that? How does the Bible have value in your eyes if it doesn't meet those requirements that so many on the more conservative side of things um, believes that it must? Yeah, well, I'll, let me say this on the front end of that. Um, all I was told to do in my life was read the Bible and I did it and I read it and I read it and I studied it and I studied it. And I'm a progressive Christian, not because, not in spite of the Bible, I'm a progressive Christian because I took the Bible seriously and read it and engaged it and, and dealt with the stuff that I was discovering in the text. I mean, you don't have to go very far to have two very different creation narratives, right? You have one that's sort of God speaking things into existence. And then the second one you have. God forming a human being from the clay. You don't have to go very far to have two Noah's Ark stories, something I never noticed growing up, reading my Bible the entire lot, my entire life, that there are two different stories of Noah's Ark that have been seamed together so that at one point you have animals two by two, and then you have seven pairs of clean animals and two pairs of unclean animals. And one, there's a raven sent out, and another one, there's a dove sent out. I mean, you have these very, like, you just don't have to get very far in the Bible if you're paying attention to realize this is not just from the hand of one author. This is something that's been compiled over time. Uh, and for me, like it's almost like this growing up free will, but then Southern Baptist when we went liberal, um, the, the sort of the statement in, in, the, in the beliefs of our church was that the Bible is infallible in its original manuscripts or the original autographs. Right. Which is to say that when, when the writer of Mark put pen to, you know, paper, um, that was inerrant and infallible. But here's the whole problem with that. We don't have anything close to the autographs, right? I mean, the earliest thing we have is about a business card sized piece of a gospel of John from about the late second century. That's not, you know, the, the first um, whole books we get, I think are in the 200s. And then we end up getting in the third, fourth, third, third century, maybe we end up getting a full, like, total complete codex of the Bible. My point is like, we just don't have like, so if we're going to argue about inerrancy of, uh, in the original manuscripts, 
what are we even talking about? Because they don't exist anymore. Or if they do exist, we don't have access to them. Um, so for me, like, I'm not even, you know, and then you have to deal with interpreters and tra like translators and translations. Are they inerrant and fallible? Because they translate words differently. So I would much rather say, look, here's what the Bible is. The Bible is the travel log. I have a, my good my good friend Stan says it's the, it's sort of a diary of our spiritual ancestors. It is it is their experience as they journeyed with God in the world, their experiences of God, one another, other people of the world, and we see them in so many beautiful ways. We see them take massive leaps forward in their understanding. I mean, take Abraham for example. We, we're having this conversation because I mean, you know. We can have all sorts of interesting discussion, debate about whether Abraham was a literal historical person or several historical people put in like composite into one character. But we're here because the Abraham story, somebody has this inkling that what they've been doing, like there's somewhere else, there's something else. There's a mystery that is calling them to leave. There's a restlessness in their spirit and they feel drawn and they don't even know where they're being drawn. They just know they have to pack up and go. Like we are here because of that sort of response to the spirit, response to the the mystery, that the, the holiness, the good, like whatever language you want to use for God. But that's what we're ultimately responding to. Um, and so I, I think that part of what happens when we just canonize the Bible and we say it's inerrant and fallible, you can't question it. And to do so is anathema and it makes you, a, you know, an apostate, a reprobate. I mean, I've been called about everything in the book the last few weeks. Um, I mean, the reality is, for me, letting go of inerrancy took the Bible from a two-dimensional text to high-def 4K experience. Yeah. Because now I'm dealing with people like me, not these robots that were controlled and given the words to say, but these people. And the reason you know you see in Paul's letters, you see some, you know, especially in the the, the genuine epistles of Paul. What you you see Paul change his perspectives over time, but, and why wouldn't he? I mean, he's literally building the plane while he's flying it. <laughs> I mean, that's no, like, that's like, that's yeah. like parenting like literally if i ever had a, a rule for my kid or a thing with one of my kids that i'm like now i'm like oh that's terrible let's move on from that of course i'm building the plane while i'm flying it um so why shouldn't we expect to see paul go gosh five years ago i wrote in this letter this this and this and now because of my experience with god and the, and the community and the spirit i now i'm gonna say this and it may sound a little different but that's because I'm awake and I'm paying attention and I'm engaged. And to me, that doesn't you know, undercut the credibility of the Bible. What that does is it says to me that this is something I can engage because that's my experience. That's my life. It is learning, growing, repenting, changing my mind, which is what that word literally means, and hopefully moving on to a better perspective. And I hope I'm doing that until the very day I die. Well, and we all do that. And an another thing to the point about Paul building, and, and I like that he's building the plane while he's flying that. And man, if that isn't an appropriate way to describe how all that was coming down as far as the, you know, the epistles and their construction, how that was being prepared, that's, that's incredibly appropriate. I don't know what can be a better way to put that. One of the things I've heard someone say, and I think it may have been Pete ends, he said this, whenever we read the epistles, we need to remember that we're reading other people's mail. Yep. And whenever we're looking at these epistles, these are letters that are written to churches to deal with specific situations in a specific place in a specific time within a specific cultural and social context. 
And so it's no wonder that he would say one thing to one church and one thing to another church. But, but one wrinkle I had never considered is what you had just said. And it's the idea that Paul is doing what we all do. He is growing in his knowledge. He is growing as a result of his experience. He is changing just like I change, just like Kevin changes, just like you change, just like we all change as we progress through this life. <clears throat> We're not the same people that we were a year ago. I'm not the same person I was a year ago. I'm definitely not the same person I was five years ago. And it's, it's, it's incredible that, that we allow ourselves the grace to do that. And we recognize that that is a fundamental aspect of human life and human nature. But when we consider the biblical writers, we don't look at them that way. Kind of like you said, we almost look at them as automatons, and it's it's almost as if that there's this picture of inerrancy in our minds that, well, inspired and God-breathed, as Kevin referenced just a little while ago, means that the Holy Spirit jacked into the back of their head, kind of like in the Matrix, and their eyes went white, and they just grabbed the quill and started writing whenever they sat down to eat breakfast, and then they get done, and the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, that's good for today, and they're like, oh boy, I can't wait to see what I wrote today. It's, <laughs> it's like, well, that that's the view of inerrancy we have, and I think that's why a lot of people really bristle Whenever you say, you know, the Bible isn't inerrant in that way and people get upset because now all of a sudden you're challenging their understanding of what the Bible is and how it works. And that entire understanding of what it is and how it works is predicated upon this preconceived idea of what it is. It's an inherited belief about what the Bible is that's being challenged. And that really rocks people's world and it makes them scared of anybody that would espouse any sort of progressive line on doctrine or viewpoints of the scriptures or anything else like that. Yep. Yeah. And, and Josh, you said something that I thought was, uh, was, was really interesting and I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how you worded it. Cause it was, it was a little while back, but you were just talking about how when people come to the scripture and they talk about it being inerrant, you know, what, what does that even mean? And, and I think that having to, to ask that kind of question and say, you know, someone says, well, I believe there's no errors in scripture. Well, you know, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. Don't read well, the Bible. No, there, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's what I have seen is even the most fundamental Christians believe in errors in scripture. They just, exp- they, they, they basically repackage them as all they do. And, and if you, especially if you really press individuals on this, um, this is actually a quote that, uh, William Lane Craig has, and this is, you know, William Lane Craig is, is, I would still say he's pretty fundamental, you know, he's, he's pretty much your typical fundamentalist overall, a brilliant guy. I think he's tries to prove the existence of God mathematically, which I'm not sure that's really what God wants us to do. But uh, if, if it appeals to some folks, then, then more power to them. But he even says this, he says, there are elements in scripture that express the emotions and anxieties and the depressions of the human heart. It seems implausible to attribute all of these things to God's dictation. And he goes on to talk about how he doesn't believe that God dictated the scriptures, that it was more of uh, he orchestrated the scriptures. And what we have is this beautiful story. And one of the examples he uses is Psalm 137, where David goes on in verse 8 and 9 to talk about happy is he who seizes the, the babies and the infants and dashes their heads against the rocks. And he even goes on to say that he thinks that this is something that is not 
reflective of the character of God. Yep. And he not only says that he doesn't believe that the Bible is was dictated by God, it was more orchestrated by God, but he even says that oftentimes what we find in the Bible is that humans affirm how they think and feel, not necessarily what God affirms. And that, you know, that is what I like to call authorial accommodation, where God allows authors to, to say things and do things. And it doesn't necessarily mean God is putting his stamp of approval on it. I don't know of a single Christian who would not agree with William Lane Craig in some form or fashion. Now, they may not go as far as he takes it, but at least they would say, well, yeah, not everything in Scripture is something that God affirms. And there are some, t- some things in Scripture that we would say God didn't affirm, even though he never flat out comes out and says, don't do it. For example... There is not a single verse from Genesis to Revelation that says anything negative about people having concubines. There's, there's not there's not anything. Now, we could go to certain stories and say, well, that wasn't God's ideal and things of that nature. But when you do that, you've become a progressive. <laughs> and, and and so and that that's the thing. When I when I started studying this stuff and you start studying the Old Testament, which most people just throw the Old Testament out. Oh, yeah, well, that's Old Testament. You know, that that was then. This is now. Well, they're literally saying that times have progressed and that God allowed humans to progress with the times. That doesn't mean God affirmed all the actions that we see. And even when God regulated commands, doesn't mean he was okay with it. Just like today, if a government regulates a command, doesn't mean that they're okay with the law itself or what the law is is uh, about. It's simply regulating a practice. And so I, I think that that's interesting. But something else I wanted to bring up, because... This is something I'm going to discuss a little bit in one of my upcoming books. And that is that if you take the view that the Bible has to be inerrant, first of all, you have to define what that is. And I've, I've really, it's, it's, it's hard to come by to meet anybody who's willing to define what that is and then be consistent in their definition. Yeah. But, the second, but the second thing is this dichotomy that either all of the Bible is perfect or if, 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 if there's one little, and I've even said this before when I was, very much a dogmatic legalistic preacher. If there's one thing in scripture that's not perfect, then none of it can be trusted. And so we've set this false dichotomy that Christians feel like they have to defend the inerrancy of scripture. Once again, whatever that means, because that means different things to different people. Read 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, if you're listening to this, and ask yourself, where does anything about inerrancy uh, come up in that in that text or anywhere else in Scripture. Some people bring up John. To, oh, Jesus said the Scriptures won't be broken and those types of things. But once again, we're projecting what we want those passages to mean instead of reading it in context. But back back to the point that I want people to consider is that if you believe if if the Scriptures cannot be trusted, if if there's one or two errors, just one, as I used to say, and a lot of people say, if there's just one, none of it can be trusted. If that's the case then how were the early Christians supposed to trust the apostles as they were teaching them? Because Mm -hmm. as you pointed out earlier, not only was the canon not uh, put together in the way that now we have it as the New Testament until hundreds of years later, but the New Testament itself was not even written until several decades started being written by these original authors several decades after Christianity started. And so how was the message being spread? Well, we would say through, through oral teaching. Okay, well, imagine if I am listening to Paul because I'm thinking, hey, this guy, he's 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 new Jesus and he's going to teach me all about Jesus or Peter, for example. You know, Peter's this this 
Uh, not only is he an apostle, I mean, he's considered a, a cornerstone of the faith. He's or Jesus is the cornerstone, but he's considered a cornerstone of the apostles. I mean, this, this is an apostle, the apostle. And then all of a sudden, I see Paul rebuking Peter in, in, for, for Peter being a hypocrite. Now, from that point forward, am I going to say I can no longer trust anything Peter has said because Peter erred? And so, therefore, anytime Peter comes to our church, we can't listen to what he says because I've seen him err. And most people will say, well, no, Kevin, of course not. We could still trust Peter. Well, if you understand that you can trust somebody simply because uh, or, or just in spite of them having maybe a, 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 a error in their writing or an error in their speech or even an error in their life, then can the same not be true about the Bible? And that God... Not as you put, I think it actually elevates God's word as well because God's not all about nice and clean, man. He, he's all about messy. For crying out loud, how did Jesus come into this world? I mean, it, it's it's through a woman who was betrothed, who had never even been married, and who was still a virgin, and yet here we see that this is the way that God comes into the world. This is the story that God comes into the world. It, it looks like she was a fornicator. It looks like you know this woman had sex out of wedlock. That's how God chose to come into the world. So when you when you start thinking about these things, you realize that the so-called arguments against the quote unquote progressive movement when it comes to understanding scripture in different ways, they really just don't hold much water. And they actually have the same problems to deal with as well, just in different ways. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean I think some of the blame has to be laid at the feet of people who do what I do, right? We're pastors, we go to seminary, we're told things, but then we're afraid to go and tell our congregations. Uh, and for example, I mean, when you think about the canon, right? So the first letters were Paul written in the 50s, maybe 60s. Then you, the next thing is Mark written in 70 and you have Matthew. You, you know, you have late texts like, you know, pretty much most scholars think Second Peter was the last to be written in the 120s maybe. And so, I mean, that's New Testament, but even the Hebrew Bible, um, the, the canon wasn't really complete. The, the writings, you know, the, the Psalms, the Proverbs, like those sorts of things, they weren't even fully completely canonized until the year 100, like after Jesus's life. So, I mean, <laughs> when, when the Bible talks, and the, one of the frustrating things is when people just randomly keep sending you like John 1 and saying, see, the Bible's the word of God. I'm like, that's not talking about a text. It's talking about a person. Um, <laughs> it's, and, and even, you know, when somebody says Hebrews, you know, the word of God is living and active. Like, I affirm that. It's just not talking about the Bible. And, uh, you know, as a leather-bound text. Um, Second Timothy, like, what, what are they calling scripture? Because the book of the New Testament wasn't canonized at that point. I mean, none of it was canonized. M much of it probably wasn't even available widely. So, you know, I think those are important. And then one other thing I want to say is, oh, two other things. Um, one is sometimes when I'm telling a story from the Bible, I'll actually say the phrase, the character God, because there are times, I, I think we have to understand that for the people writing these texts, they were telling us what they believed about God. And I think sometimes they have breakthroughs. And it's so brilliant and beautiful to see when Abraham doesn't sacrifice Isaac, that story has always been so um, troubling to me. I mean, Abraham has this sense, like, I need to go sacrifice my son. And he doesn't even question it. He just goes to do it. That's what he understands. This is what the gods are like. So why wouldn't God ask this? But he has a breakthrough. And he changes his understanding that this God doesn't demand. This God provides. 
right? That's in the Bible. I would hate to lose that. So, but I, I think there are times when, when the character God is, these folks are telling their stories and they're telling us how they experience God, but we have to understand it was in their own time, place, and we may see a growing understanding, but we don't see a full and final understanding. And I think almost anybody should be able to agree with that. Um, and then one final thing, and then I'll shut up. Uh, I think that what we are dealing with right now in like these conversations about inerrancy and infallibility would be so completely foreign to the first Jewish followers of Jesus. Because if you, I mean, they, they had a creative approach to interpreting the Bible. If you read, for, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 10, um, where Paul's talking about the, the people, that, the Israelites being wandering in the de- wet desert and they get water from a rock. And Paul says, and that rock was Christ. If I had interpreted the Hebrew Bible like that, I would have failed Old Testament in seminary. <laughs> like Paul is just like playing fast and loose with the text. It, it, this is not exegesis. This is 1000% exegesis. And, and he does it freely. And if you get into the tradition of Midrash, where they are essentially creatively telling and filling in gaps in stories and interpreting stories, this whole business of inerrancy and fallibility, I really think for the first people who became known as the first Christians, but they were Jewish, they would not know what in the world we were talking about because perfection is a Greek idea. And as Christianity spread from the, the womb of, of Judaism and it encountered the Greek Greco-Roman world, I really believe, especially after Constantine, I always like to say Constantine didn't convert, Constantine converted Christianity. And yeah. you can take those Good moments point. as it spreads where you can't tell where Christianity ends and Greek philosophy starts. And that's, that's what goes to the Council of Nicaea. And that's, that's how our doctrines and dogmas were formed. But I think if we could transport somebody from, um, the, you know, if we could bring Paul back and say, hey, take a look, read these church history books, tell us what you think. I think he would be completely confused about what we've done. And he, he wouldn't understand and he probably wouldn't recognize Jesus. Well, I one think, the, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Well, one of the things that I think is really interesting that you just said, Josh, is the idea of character God. I've never really heard it put quite that way, but it makes a lot of sense. And whenever we consider that the Bible is a, a two authored book, by that, I mean that I, I do believe that there is a measure of the mind of God contained within Scripture. Now, whether or not God directly inspired people to write some things or whether or not it's a text that God adopted as his own, whatever one's view is of the ultimate authorship of the Bible, there's no mistaking that there is a divine discourse and a human discourse there. And so often the human discourse is completely eliminated. And whenever that human discourse is eliminated from our minds and we refuse to acknowledge the humanity of scripture, then we're left with some real problems. Whenever we look at the Bible as just a completely divine book that's given to us from God and it's delivered to us there and it's placed in our hands, well, then we have to deal with a schizophrenic God. Because on one hand, you have a God that creates everything. He creates the universe and loves Adam and Eve and places them in the garden. And then God decides to obliterate mankind and wipe them out with the flood. And then God you know, calls Abraham out of his country. And we see that beautiful story of Abraham and Isaac and how God is a God that provides. 
you know, we see that in, in play as well. But then we also see God raining fire and brimstone down on Sodom and Gomorrah and turning Lot's wife into a pillar of salt after that. You know, you have God confusing languages at the Tower of Babel. You have God doing all of these things. God wanting to wipe the people, the children of Israel out after he leads them out of Egypt. And he's speaking with Moses. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 hold up now. If you go and you wipe all these folks out, what's that going to say about you? Look at what all the people in Egypt are going to say about you. They're going to be talking about you and how bad you are. Now, you don't want to do that. And I was like, yeah, Moses, you know what? You make a good point there. Don't you love it? You Moses forth. has to talk God down. Yeah, like, yeah. Be, be Hold me back, and he, bro. <laughs> and he does. You know, God doesn't say, "I'm God and you're man." God's like, "Yeah, you're right." You know, it's almost that. like he, he he hangs his head down in uh, almost kind of in defeat, like like a child does after a parent has just disciplined him. And God's like, "You're right, Moses. I I don't know what I was thinking, man." Well, um, it, well it, I didn't it, mean to interrupt you there. Go no, ahead. No, that's going, fine. Please. But but I mean that's that's to the point though is that whenever you take such a, a rigid literalist perspective, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean, that's a perspective that I held for a long time, and there are still some of those threads that I still hold on to because they make sense to me at this point in my Christian walk. It, it makes sense. But whenever that human discourse is ignored, then we have a whole lot more to wrestle with. But whenever we recognize the human discourse in scripture and we recognize that these people, like you said, Josh, are are illustrating their perspective of who God is. And God's like, you know what? Yep, that's good. We're going to go ahead and keep that in the scriptures, you know, by whatever mechanism that was done. A lot of those tensions really aren't tensions anymore whenever we understand it in those terms. And I, I really think there's a lot of power to that. It lets the Bible be a conversation, too. I mean, I, I think you see push and pull in the Bible. I mean, yeah. if you lay Job next to Proverbs, next to Ecclesiastes, you're going to find very different views of the world, very different views of just the question of why do we suffer? And to me, what's inspiring about that is not that they end up getting it right, because, I mean, if you read the book of Job, there's not like, you know, the, the beginning and ending of Job, which seems like a later addition to a, a more ancient poetry. It's just sort of like at the beginning, Job loses everything and all his kids. And at the end, he gets it all back and he gets more kids. See, it's fine. I'm like, a parent didn't write this text. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. I mean, you love your kids. And every, every time you have a kid, if you're a parent, my wife and I have four. And you have your first child and you are just so filled and over abounding in love for that child. And you think to yourself, there is no way I could possibly possess any more love or exude any more love. If I do, I'm going to explode. I'm just going to pop like a balloon here. And then you have another kid. And all of that is multiplied and compounded at a near exponential level. Your love just continues to grow. And I can't think of anything worse than the prospect of losing one of my children. And this is something I haven't talked a lot about, but we did. We had something take place back in 2019 in which our youngest, who will be five here in, in just a few days, um, he almost died. Uh, we have a pool in our backyard and he is our, he's the one that we're just going to have to just, this kid, he wears me out. If, if I wasn't already <laughs> bald, he would make me go bald. <laughs> but he, he figured out how to unlock the deadbolt on the back door. My wife and I are in bed and we hear something in the backyard and we're like, well, what is that? 
he had gotten up and instead he would always come to our bedroom and wake us up and tell us that he wanted breakfast. If he woke up before we did, he had gone into the backyard and had fallen into the swimming pool. But fortunately we hadn't filled up the pool yet. We had just taken the cover off and they were coming that day to fill it up. And he barely had his head above water. Our dog had jumped into the pool and he was holding on to the dog Dude, that rocked me. I wasn't right yep. for about four or five days after that happened. Yeah. So the idea of losing a child, I mean, that's the biggest blow I can possibly imagine. And for someone to think, oh, well, look, yeah, you lost your kids, but look, you've got all that and more back. You had five, you lost all five of them, but now you have, now you've got 10. Isn't that better? And it's like, well, yeah, it's <laughs> awesome having 10 kids now, but that doesn't replace those five I already lost. Like you said, that wasn't written by a parent. So to think that that is a literal telling of literal history to me as a parent, it's it sort of, it's, I don't know. There's, I think there's something more yeah. going on there. And, and even in the Job story where it starts out and God's like, Hey, you see that guy? To, to, to the Satan, which is the actual Hebrew title, the Satan, the accuser, who in this story, isn't like the bad guy and like tending the fires of hell, but this is sort of like a prosecuting attorney in God's court in Job. Um, and God essentially says to the accuser, hey, 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 have you seen Job? That guy loves me. That's a good dude. He doesn't disobey. And the Satan's like, guess what? I bet if you mess with his life, he will. I bet he'll curse you. That's how things happen in the world. Like God is going, hey, look at that dude. He's pretty good. Let's go screw with him and see what happens. Like that is a terrible, terrible way, I think, to understand God. But that's where our ancient ancestors were. And I think we need to keep reading it. It matters. We need to engage it. I don't want that to be the way I see God. I don't think that's the way God has ever been. Um, and I, I just was reminded of a text. Uh, is it okay if I read a, a short text from Jeremiah real quick? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, brother. Go ahead. So there's this text, Jeremiah 7. It's sort of, um, uh, it's in this section where, it's a section that Jesus ends up quoting some from because uh, when he cleanses the temple, when he shuts down the temple in um, Jerusalem in Holy Week, and they're essentially using the temple as a front to basically uh, oppress and rob and do all sorts of terrible things to other human beings. And they think that the temple will protect them. This line has always been interesting to me. It's Jeremiah seven twenty one. This is what the Lord of the heavenly forces, the God of Israel says, add your entirely burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat them yourselves. On the day I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I didn't say a thing. I gave no instructions about entirely burnt offerings or sacrifices. Rather, this is what I required of them. Obey me so that I may become your God. You may become my people. Follow the path I mark out for you so that it may go well with you. But they didn't listen or pay attention. They followed their uh, willful and evil hearts and went backward rather than forward. I just think this is so remarkable where God's like, I never told you to sacrifice. We have entire books of the Bible about how to do that. Yeah. So, so well, like... Who's right? <laughs> yeah. It's well, and, and and there's a you know there's so much in the Old Testament, especially. Sorry, Lee, I cut you off. No, you're uh, fine, brother. Go because because I want to make this point that as a fundamentalist conservative, hearing some of this stuff, I'm I'm just thinking to myself, oh, this is just garbage, man. I can't believe he just said that. I mean, he's just disrespecting the scripture. And the reality of it, though, is that just like you, when I started studying the Bible more, not just studying my beliefs that I already had about the Bible and, and cherry picking certain verses, but I mean, just actually taking a book of the Bible and studying through it, saying, I'm just going to take, 
you know, Genesis and study through it. I'm going to go through the, you know, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings and first and second Chronicles. I'm just going to go through and study all of those with the, with the prophets in chronological order and, and figure out what all's going on here. When you do that, it really forces you to have to either do all sorts of hermeneutical gymnastics to try to come up to make the Bible look like this perfected book that you're told it has to be, or you have to start looking at things differently, or perhaps even become an atheist, which unfortunately that's what happens to a lot of people because of that false dichotomy. Lee and I talk about these dichotomies all the time because we're such a binary culture. It's either this or that. That's mm -hmm. it. There's no spectrum. And so it's you either have to take this or that's it. And so Christians say, well, look, I've studied the Bible, man. There's just so much in there. I mean, this is a God who commands people to kill innocent children, and this is a God who uh, commands even people to kill their own children and, you know, just, just so God can know something uh, supposedly he already knows because he's all right. knowing. And I mean, if, you know, you just start getting into all these things and you either have to ignore it or you have to engage it. And if you engage it, you, I truly believe you'll either become an atheist or you will begin to understand God in a completely different way and it'll make your faith stronger than it's ever been. And I, I know that's what's happened to you and that's what's happened to me. Yep. But I want, I want to show the audience or at least just bring these uh, few examples up because people may be saying, well, yeah, but when the Bible says God says something, then it's true. We, we must accept it as God, it coming from God. Well, there's a clear passage in the Bible, 2 Samuel 24, 1, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but this is when David is going to take a census. And in 2 Samuel 24, 1, it says that God commanded him to take a census. But then hundreds of years later, we have the chronicler in 1 Chronicles 21, 1, who is retelling this story, and he actually says it was Satan who told him to take this census. And when I was studying this text, because you know there's a all these websites out there, they know all this stuff exists, man. They know it's out there. And so what they do is they go, oh, well, what the Chronicler's doing is he's giving us the proper interpretation saying that it was Satan who actually did it and God allowed Satan to do it. <laughs> well, that sounds great on your apologetics website, but here's the problem. You have fundamental evangelical conservative Christians who have just admitted that there are times the Bible attributes something to God, and it's not until hundreds of years later that it's properly corrected and attributed to Satan. That's a huge point, right. man. And, you know, I, I remember studying that. I thought, wait, this is crazy. Like, we're actually saying that there's a text when where, where Samuel says that God said something, but it's not until hundreds of years later when the Chronicle comes around and he he basically edits it. He says, well, this wasn't God. That's who they thought it was, but it wasn't God. It was actually Satan who did this. And there's a lot of times in Scripture where we see things being attributed to God. Uh, 2 Samuel 16, 7 through 13. I'm just going to kind of read this laundry list off here. Uh, 1 Kings 22, 1 through 6. 1 Kings 20 through 23. Or, excuse me, 1 Kings 22, 20 through 23. Uh, Psalm 105, 24 and 25, Joshua 11, 19 and 20, Deuteronomy 2, 30, Jeremiah 23, 15, uh, 17, 25 and 31. There are so many passages and I had that up because I was working on my book and I have this all these verses here. But <laughs> it's it's it just shows you that we have to engage the Bible. We can't just assume, well, because the Bible says God said something, 
that's the case because there may be in another place in scripture where later the Bible says, well, actually that was Satan. Um, or there may be other times where we have to figure out based upon the context, was this something that God actually said or did, or was this something that they thought God said or did? Yep. This stuff absolutely rocks people's world, but it's in the Bible. It's there. And we either can ignore it or we can engage it. And if we're going to engage it, we have to engage it honestly and fairly. And I think that's why so many people are leaving Christianity because they see so many church leaders not either engaging it at all, or they're not actually engaging it very fairly, you know, to the context. I think that's they're just trying to. I'm sorry. I think that point about engaging it fairly is important. So and I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to do this because I don't want to always tell people I am a friend of the Bible. I'm not a foe. So if I point something out, if I critique something, I'm doing it as someone who loves this. I have skin in this game. It matters to me. But even, I mean, if you ask somebody the question, who killed Goliath? I mean, the answer seems pretty forthright, right? It's going to be David. But what's interesting later uh, at the end of Second Samuel, where there's sort of this extra bunch of stuff that's sort of stuck onto the book, it, it really looks like that they finished the book and then they had some extra stories they didn't know what to do with. So they just stuck it on the end like is sort of an epilogue or something. But in that, in Second in, in Samuel 21, it actually tells us that somebody else killed Goliath, um, a, a, a guy named uh, Elhanan. And uh, what some translations did to sort of cover this up is they said um, it was Goliath's brother. But, but that's not what the text says. And so I think instead of engaging and saying, why might, what could, does this mean David got credit for something David didn't do? Is this a scribal error? Is this whatever? We've sort of just covered it up and, and fed into allowing people to think that the Bible is this perfect, pristine thing that is untouched, that has never had any issues, that is, from the moment it was written has been passed down to us flawlessly. And it's created this sort of, if you don't believe the, in the Bible this way, then you're not a Christian and you're, you're, you're hellbound and all of this sort of stuff. And I think what it ultimately does is when you take the Bible and you sort of freeze it and you say, there's nothing to do but study it. There, there's nothing more for you to do. There's not a, hey, find your role as you continue the story. What it ultimately does is it creates boredom. And when people are bored, that's when they decide that they are now the judge, jury, and arbiter of who's in the faith and who's not. Yeah. Um, and that's when you see people jumping behind keyboards and saying terrible things to other people. It's because, one, you're, you're messing with their certainty and plausibility structure. You're, you're, you're messing with their certainty. They've been given certainty. They're banking on certainty. But the reality is certainty doesn't exist. And so there's also fear. And, and like In so many ways, I was brought up with, with fear and certainty as, as being the two main things. Fear we don't need and certainty we can't have. So yeah. what do you do on the other side of that, right? And so you're bored. You're afraid. You're, you're having your certainty poked at. What are you going to do? You're going to lash out. And, and it's because you've not been given. And, I mean, when I sort of my faith unraveled, I was very angry for a long time because I felt like the information has been out there and it was willfully hidden from me. Yeah. Um, and I've made peace with that now. I know that I think the people who were raising me, you know, in the faith did, did the best they could. They did what they thought was right. Um but there's still a little bit of that, gosh, I just wish I had found this stuff earlier because for me, it hasn't. I mean, you could probably tell in the way I'm talking about it. I could do this all night. Like, I love the Bible. And the more I learn about it, the more I love it and the more value I see in it, not as something that sort of just tells us every move to make, but it's almost like something that shows us, uh, you know, it's like the path, right? It's like you're going through a wilderness 
and the folks who created the Bible and all the generations of Christians between us and them have been clearing out the past. And so we've had a little bit easier, but now we have to clear out the past for the next generation. And if, if we are yeah, engaged, it, we're not going to do the work. And getting, getting back to what you were saying about, you know, some of these discrepancies and things like that, what, what really started to change my mind was when I would actually read the so-called answers to the discrepancies. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I actually tell people all the time when I post stuff out there, they're like, oh, well, this, you know, this apologetics group knows about that. And I said, well, just because you, they know about it doesn't mean that they're, you know, have accurately dealt with it or addressed it. I said, have you actually read what they said about it? They're like, well, no, but they already know about it and they, they've addressed it. And, you know, that's, you know, that's nothing new. I hear that all the time. Well, what y'all are saying is nothing new. This is higher criticism. This is nothing new. Well, a lot of things are nothing new. And so, you know, the Jesus story is nothing new, but I still believe it. And so, if, you know, I always tell people just because someone may be aware in your conservative group of these discrepancies, it doesn't mean that they've properly addressed it. And I always challenge people to go and read how people have tried to address some of these uh, what I call problem passages in Scripture, whether it be a moral problem, um, trying to figure out how Jesus, if he truly is the embodiment of God, is you know okay if that's the case how do you how do you uh, harmonize that with some of the things you see in the Old Testament and the way that you see people do that it just it makes things worse I mean it's yeah. like well, it's, yeah. it's it's actually adding more complication because of the way they're having to explain it away and you know I'm I'm a big fan of Bart Ehrman even though he's he's not a believer he's a genius and he's he's super uh, in my opinion super objective because. You know, he, he has a lot of uh, atheists and, and non-believers who don't like him because he's written one of the best books proving the existence of Jesus, the historical Jesus. But mm -hmm. then, you know, on the other hand, you have a lot of Christians who don't like him because he's just very honest about things that are in Scripture. And it, it just does a disservice if Christians are supposed to be of the highest integrity and we constantly cover up our mistakes, we constantly cover up the past you know, that's the look, people are doing this even with uh, Galileo. Yeah. There are Christians now saying, oh, well, actually, people didn't really believe geocentrism back then. They really didn't think that's what the Bible taught. It's like, how in the world can we rewrite history? <laughs> well, because, you, you know, it's like, like 19, what, 60 something? 90 yeah, something? Like, yeah. Recent. 300 years after. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, and it's like, you know, how in the world, by the way, there's still people out there who say, no, uh, you know, uh, Galileo was wrong. And, you know, the, the the earth is in the center of the universe because the Bible says it and that settles it. And but, you know, thankfully, that's definitely in the minority. But you do have the majority of the people now they're trying to figure out a way to say, oh, well, it wasn't because of the Bible that they believed in geocentrism. Even though when you do actually go through and study, that's exactly their appeal. That's what they made because the scripture speaks to ancient science. Why? Because that's the only science there was at that point. The Bible's not a science book. And and so nope. so if you can't re if you can't rewrite scripture, you have to rewrite history. And that's what so many Christians have done when they say, Well, no, clearly the Bible, you know, does teach geocentrism. Um, well, maybe that was that was this, or maybe that was that, or maybe it doesn't teach it at all, or maybe it does teach it and we're wrong and science is wrong, which I've, like I said, met some people that way. But what happens is when you have this box, you can't move. Like like you you yourself can't move. There's all there's the all you can do is try to say, well, 
you know, I don't like this and I don't like that. And, but I believe that the scripture is perfect and all it says and does. And so I have to somehow defend science in scripture. And then we have to become little science apologetics, <laughs> you know, and as, as a 15 year old, I was going to all these, uh, you know, classes and, and seminars, you know, and thinking, okay, now I can take on an atheist because I've had three classes on, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the design and things like this. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling though, because I truly believe people when they when they take that approach to scripture they ultimately will either be led to and I don't want to create a false dichotomy myself but I have found that there's a spectrum within this but a lot of people will either be led to this this arrogance as you called it certainty that you feel like you have to have all the answers or people will just be so discouraged because they see what's there, they notice the problems, they notice the the issues in their own mind as they study, but their preacher just tells them, ah, oh, it's no big deal, you know, you're doubting God. People use that a lot. Oh, how dare you doubt God? Josh, I can't believe you are leading people to doubt God's word. I, I can't believe, I mean, and, and then people who are led by fear, people who are easily manipulated by uh, guilt, which a lot of religious people tend to be, they, they they will say, well, you're right. I'm sorry for even questioning God. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to about my change. And they were on that path. But then all of a sudden, somebody got a hold of them and started just fearing them back again. It, it yeah. had nothing to do with walking them through their questions. It was, well, no, you know what's right. And, you know, you don't you know where that's going to lead if you go down that path. You just keep doing what you've always done. And, you know, in essence, shut up and sit down and uh, just, just do what you've been told. Yeah. And so... I really appreciate what you're doing, and I really appreciate the fact that you're using that platform for good. And, and I'm glad you allowed the Christian Post to do an interview, knowing that it would be taken out of context and uh, you would be a whipping boy <laughs> for, uh, for, for them to say, oh, look, you know, look at all these crazy Christians, but, you know, who are, who are going in the way of the world. But in reality, I see so many people who others would call progressive in a negative way, and it's making them love people more. It's making them uh, help the poor. It's making them, and when I say make, I don't mean coerce, but it, it's it, they're wanting to. They're being inspired to do these things because they're really now learning about Jesus, not the Bible, but they're learning about what the Bible's about, which is Jesus Christ and how to love God and how to love people better. And you know, I, I've always said that if you want to make people mad, um, teach the importance of inclusion. That makes people angry. I mean, that put Jesus on the cross. You know, they look, if Jesus would have come and said, hey, the only people going to heaven are my little small group of Jews, dude, they would have said, King Jesus, man, you're the, you're awesome. But the fact he said, no, 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 I, my, my message is one of inclusion. And and it's it's actually those who think they're the religious elite. Th those are the ones who have some straightening up to do. Those are the ones who it's going to be hard for them to find me while they're here on earth because the, that that way for the Jews is narrow because they have these preconceptions. And I think that uh, the same can be said today and, and will always be true as long as the world stands, is that when you preach that message of inclusion and love, that's hard, man. When I was a legalist, that was so easy. Oh, man, it's so easy to, to get into debates with people who disagree with you. It's so easy to condemn people. That is such a fleshly desire and so easy to do. But to love people who are different than you that's a message that requires me to take up my cross and follow Jesus. And you know, Jesus, what's interesting is Jesus didn't invent the message. Jesus just comes along and embodies it in a particular way. So I mean, throughout the entire tradition in the Hebrew scriptures, you have this debate, this back and forth 
between the priests and the prophets. You have the priests saying, we need to do this a certain way. And it goes through this hierarchy. And, this is, and then you have the prophets who just like come out of nowhere and their hair's wild and they're eating weird stuff and they're doing weird stuff. And they're saying, how, how dare you fast? And you take one day to fast. And yet during that fast, you are oppressing your workers. You're taking advantage of widows. You're doing all of these things that are anti-human. Um, and that is, I mean, I think human beings, we have a tendency to want to form in groups. And then will, regardless of your religious tradition, regardless of where you're born, there's this tendency in lots of us to want to form groups and then kick everybody else out. Um, and I always I, I tell people, I, I think that there was a certain point in our, our human growth, and, and I'm going to use a really bad word here, evolution, where that was a really important, um, knowing who is safe and who's not, all that was really important for our survival. I think that is the single greatest thing threatening us. And I think some, you know, Jesus' message is obviously a challenge to so many people. He's having an intra-family discussion with the Jews, but he's also having a discussion with the Romans. And that gets him in trouble too, because he's arguing that the way empire divides up the world is destructive and there's a better way, and it's called the kingdom of God. And so Jesus puts himself, I mean, in so many bullseyes um, as he preaches this message. And I firmly agree. I think that Jesus, um, and I think Jesus' first followers got this, that it's about widening the circle and building a bigger table. I mean, you have Paul in Galatians issuing what some writers say is the first egalitarian statement in human history, that in Christ there's neither male nor female, June or Greek, slave nor free. All the ways we carve up the world are null and void at the table. Um, and, and Paul gets a lot of flack, and I think he gets a lot of flack because some people wrote in his name in some cases. But in this case, Paul is leading the charge and uh, saying that the Christian movement is one of ever-expanding circle, ever-expanding table. And my goodness, have we lost that message over 2,000 years. Let, let me ask you one question for the audience so that they can can hear your answer, because I would be curious to, to know how you would answer this, too, because I do think this is on a lot of people's minds, at least when they first hear this, because this truly is an introduction to understanding more about progressivism and, and, and how it works and things of that nature and just the broad spectrum. But someone's listening to this and this is perhaps the first time they've ever heard anything like this. Mm. And some of this, they're like, okay, that makes sense. And yeah, you're, you're right. This, there, there's some things that I've had questions about. And yeah, there's times when uh, God's maybe presented more as a character in, in scripture instead of who he actually is. And so if, if somebody's listening to that, I know when I first heard this a few years ago, I mean, I was just scared to death. I'll be honest with you. Sure. This, this just freaked me out. It was like, what in the world is going on? And I had that knee-jerk reaction of, well, what parts then are we supposed to follow? And how am I supposed to make a decision on when to take something an apostle said and when not to take something? an apostle said, or even take it further, since Jesus didn't write any of the Bible, all we have are individuals writing about Jesus. How are we to trust what they even said about Jesus in the first place to know that Jesus is worth following anyway? What if they had Jesus wrong? And so those are, I know that's a loaded question, man. I know I got to put you on the spot there, but 
but but in essence, what I what I just would like for you to you know explain at least in summary to give an explanation so people know that for lack of better words, we're, none of us are saying we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. How do you struggle? with figuring out how to apply the Bible and make a decision by saying, this is what I think needs to happen, or this is how I should live my life. Yeah. So, I mean, as a Christian, I'm, um, and I, I would say uh, Jesus is a big deal to me <laughs> as a Christian. Uh, you know, uh, so I, I begin with Jesus. Um, do I, do I think the gospels probably painted him always exactly? I, I don't know. I really do believe there are things that are recorded in the New Te- in the Gospels that Jesus actually said and did. I think that some of the stories are told in parable form. I think that's really a, quite a bit more in the Gospel of John, too. Um, but I would say I, I think in Jesus, for me, I begin to see a trajectory. And I actually would argue going all the way back to Genesis, if we read the Bible, we do see a human trajectory. A, a movement toward a certain kind of humanity in response to God. And it pops up through the prophets. I mean, I always, I never touched the prophets when I was younger because I just thought they predicted the future. <laughs> and I couldn't understand it. Instead of realizing that these people were railing against injustice. I mean, these prophets were, were not, they weren't just talking about religion because they, they you couldn't separate it. They're talking religion, politics, and economics at the same time. And yeah. so that you see, I think, teased out in these traditions, you begin to see a portrait of a God, Exodus 3. The God in the ancient world, and it was believed that the, the pyramid of power, the person on top was put there by the gods and could not be questioned. And then everybody else, and then you finally had the slaves and the lower classes that the pyramid was sitting on. And here comes a tradition into that world where everybody, everybody believed it. Everybody assumed the gods pick who's in charge. And they say that actually this God is on the side of the oppressed, that this God wills liberation for those who are oppressed. And I think you follow, you can follow those lines all the way through the Bible, through the prophets, at times even in the wisdom tradition that goes straight through to Jesus and straight through to the early Christians. And so I, I think the kingdom of God message, Jesus doesn't, doesn't create. What Jesus says is this kingdom isn't somewhere else. It isn't waiting to arrive. You will begin to see it when you uh, repent and trust the good news. When literally, when you change your mind, when you change your thinking, when you get new eyes. I think that's the, the brilliance of, of the story of Jesus healing. You know, in John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind from birth, one of the signs in John. And it, it's sort of juxtaposed with some of the religious leaders who who can see, but they're actually blind. They miss, they're missing what's going on. Right. So Jesus is yeah, opening that, eyes. And I, I think it's, I, I think that's, that's the point for me. It can, it connects all the way through. It's not just a new Testament thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and I agree with you 110% because um, I, I call it the character of the Bible um, is, or, you know, the narrative arc, if you will. But yeah. we, I like the, the, I call it the character of the Bible because People can relate to that. If if you know something well enough, or no, let's say you know somebody well enough, what do we say when they do something 
that is out of the ordinary. We say it's out of character. Why? Because it's not something that goes with the totality of, of who we know that person to be. Mm-hmm. And as you pointed out, when you look at the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is a heavy emphasis on certain things. And those certain things are love. I mean, obviously love, there, there's no doubt whether, no matter how you define love, there's no denying love is the most important thing. That's seen in the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. So if, if you start from there and say, okay, well now how is that love manifested. So we agree love is the most important thing in scripture. That's consistent. How's that manifested throughout scripture consistently? And what is the character that we see of the Bible and what's it pointing us toward? So when we see a weird story that doesn't seem to really fit that, it's not that we ignore it. In fact, I, I dare say more more quote unquote conservative Christians tend to ignore the stuff in the Bible that they don't like, whereas more of the progressive Christians are the ones who tend to know about it and engage it. Yep. And you know they're they're willing to to address it and say, well, look, you know, you're you're reading this wonderful story about a loving God, and then all of a sudden this loving God commands one of his own children to kill his child. Huh? <laughs> uh, something else must be going on here than originally meets the eye. Why? Because that's acting out of character. It's acting out of its own character. And so I, I, I think the way you explain it's phenomenal for people to see. And, and this is something, too, that I always say. The Bible is trustworthy in the message it presents, the ultimate message it presents. It's trustworthy. And, you know, and that's that's where I go back to saying I don't think Paul was perfect. But I think he was a trustworthy guy. I don't think Peter was was perfect, but I don't think a single Christian on the basis of Peter's imperfection said, I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. So why would we do the same thing to the Bible? Why would we say, well, there may be some imperfection, therefore I can't listen to anything it says. If that's the case, nobody would have listened to the apostles. Oral teaching would have would have never happened for the first few decades. That they would have said, sorry, you're you're you know imperfect. (laughs) We we can't listen to what you have to say. Why? Because I believe, once again, the character of the individual, The I think the community was heavily involved. I mean, there's a lot that goes into their, the oral teaching there for the first yeah. several decades. But you, you just you begin to see that there's something much more, you know, there, there's this narrative going on uh, and this this arc that is presented in Scripture. And I think that we can begin to try to to parse through that in a much easier way than a lot of these other as we already discussed, hermeneutical gymnastics that some of the more fundamentalist teachers uh, try to provide us with. I I really agree. And I think, you know, when somebody's like, well, you don't think the Bible's trustworthy. You don't, you think we should get rid of the Bible. I'm just like, who said that? I never said that. It's not what I said at all. If you've listened to any of the, I mean, any of the podcasts I've recorded in the last week, if you've listened to the sermon, if you read anything I've written, no, of course. I, I, I I think the Bible's trustworthy. I think the when, Bible's when does fallible when does fallible mean untrustworthy? That's my question. In a Greek system of perfection. In a Greek system of perfection where anything that doesn't meet the Platonic ideal is considered bad and should be done away with. I, we do not even, I think, as a society, begin to know how deeply influenced we are, not by Hebrew prophets, not by early Christians, but by a Greco-Roman philosophy that if you've never taken a single that's a class. I took some classes in college, but if you've never had a single one, you are so deeply immersed in that that you cannot even begin to understand it until you actually begin engaging with some of the literature around it. And then it's like, oh my gosh! I mean, the reason they're debating how many natures Jesus had in like the third, fourth, fifth century is because yeah. they're Greek, they're Greco-Romans. They, they are steeped. They're trying to come to a Hebrew, uh, a, a, a Jewish faith 
with a Greek philosophical lens. And those two things just don't work together. Well, and that's what the, you know, that's what the Nicene Creed was all about. Uh, you know, you see Nyssa of, of, or Gregory of Nyssa, what was his whole point was, well, I, we've got this view and we've, you know, I'm going to explain my view of God because, you know, we're these intelligent elite guys and we're going to form a, a group so that we can, we're in power and we're going to say what everybody else should believe. And that's, that's how churches are today. I mean, if you go to a church and you want to know its beliefs, ask the people in power. That's all you have to ask because, and, and if, if those people in power change their beliefs, the, everything else changes too. And so, yeah, you're, you're so right with that. And just that idea of, you know, uh, fallibility equals untrustworthy because in reality, nobody applies that. Nobody, if that's the case, we can't trust any of the New Testament. And, and, and that's why I believe that we've created more of a problem in trying to present it that way because who, who, who created the canon to begin with? And we say, we say nice flowery statements and sentiments like, well, God did. Well, that's great. But if, if, if these men put it together, how do we know that they weren't mistaken? You know, what, what What if they were mistaken? I mean, after all, do you believe they're sinless? Well, no, they're not sinless. Well, what if they accidentally included something that should be included or they left out many of the other literally hundreds of, of letters that were uh, conflicting with what we have? So, you know, how, how do you parse all that out? And so when, when people start beginning to say, well, fallible means untrustworthy, they're going to have a hard time believing anything. Yep. Being able to accept anything because, you know, I'm not perfect, but I hope to shout Lee would say Kevin's a trustworthy guy. Right. It doesn't mean I'm perfect, right? but I, th I hope he thinks I'm a trustworthy guy. And yeah, so for the most part, for the most, yeah, part. For the most part, you know, the, the parts you like anyway. You know? <laughs> you know, I was just thinking my kids know I'm fallible. Oh yeah. They, they don't oh, know that yeah. word, but they know dad messes up. They, they, but, but they also know that, uh, you know, I tend to bounce back and come back and make it right. And, that they can trust me, that I'm going to try to my best to do what's best for them. I mean, this, this whole idea that, gosh, if, if you pay attention to the process of, of how we got the Bible, all that stuff, that you're somehow being unfaithful. Again, I, I'll say it again. I, I think inerrancy and infallibility is actually a low view of Scripture because it is trying to fit the Scripture into what we want it to be. I, actually, in my master's thesis, I, I talked about inerrancy and infallibility and, and sort of why it's an issue. And I read one book um, and one of the authors was giving reasons why inerrancy is true. And one of the reasons was because the church needs it. And I was like, I, I may need a million dollars. It doesn't mean I get it. <laughs> Touche salesman. <laughs> so like, I mean, <laughs> no, go ahead, brother. Sorry. I was just gonna say, so like, we, like that is the, that is an argument built on stilts that are built on stilts that are on like fine China. Like it's not, it, it just doesn't hold up. It's not a good reason to ignore everything you're learning, everything you're experiencing and to say, well, gosh, we have to believe this because we need it. I actually don't think the church needs an infallible love. I think the church needs a text that shows human beings in process who at times are brilliant and at times are messing it up and getting it wrong. And yet they get back up and they keep pushing the thing forward. I think that's what we need. Well, and that's what we have. That's what yep. we see. I mean, the Bible, if we needed an infallible, perfect Bible, it seems to me that it would look completely different than the one we actually have. 
And so instead of rewriting the Bible or I guess reinterpreting the Bible to fit it into the image that we have projected upon to it, we need to accept it for what it is. And as we get ready to, to bring this episode and this discussion to a close, I, I, I want to kind of really show my appreciation for one of the things you just said a moment ago is the idea that we are so influenced by platonic philosophy and and that ancient greco-roman perspective on truth and the world and everything else at least up until you know up until the enlightenment whenever it was kind of reintroduced and now we're getting into this postmodern era and that's been trucking along now for for what about 100 150 years or so we don't realize what influences us until we can get on the outside and look in at mm-hmm. it until we can, until it's brought to our attention. We don't realize that there are so many things that are implicit in our thought patterns and the way that we view things and our value systems. I mean, we don't understand that we look at things through a particular lens in just in general, just as people. Whenever I was looking at the Bible through a more strict literalist perspective, even with all of the messiness that that can bring and the problems that that creates, you don't realize you're doing that until you realize you're doing that. And the hard part is coming to that realization and realizing that there is a tremendous amount of influence that, you know, for good or bad, for better or worse, it plays a role in our interpretive strategy whenever we approach the scriptures. And what, what I have taken away from this conversation and feel free to, to correct me if I'm, if I'm mistaken on any of this is that whenever we look at Christianity through a progressive lens, it's not this big, scary thing that doesn't care about the Bible and wants to throw the Bible away. It looks at the Bible for what it actually is. It recognizes the Bible as a product, not just of divine discourse, but also of human discourse. And it's it, it's kind of like that statement that people make whenever they're they're dating someone and they're getting ready to break it up. Oh, you don't love me. You love the idea of me. And it's mm-hmm. it's the idea that that in Christianity in general, it seems as though we have this idea of what the Bible is. And that's what we're in love with rather than recognizing the scriptures for what it, they actually are. Mm-hmm. And that mentality and thought process can permeate itself in our application of the word, whenever we view the word as something that we need to wrestle with and something that we will struggle with, you know, the 89th Psalm comes to mind where you have someone who is just excoriating God and who is taking God to task, who, you know, spends the first, what, two thirds of the Psalm talking about God and his wondrous works and his majesty and his might and his power and how he is such a good God and how he keeps his promises and how he promises to abide with Israel forever. And then they say, well, then why in the world are we in captivity? Why have we lost the land? Why are you hiding your face from us? Are you going to hide forever? Yeah. You know, they put, yeah. you know, that, that writer puts God on blast and that's something that, you know, we would never even conceive of that in a more, you know, conservative or fundamentalist mindset. We would never think to question God the way the psalmist does. And yet he does. And and yeah. yet that writer takes God to task. And then at the very end is blessed be the name of the Lord, whether that's sarcasm or whether that's the psalmist saying, you know, in spite of all of this, I'm still going to trust you regardless yeah. of what it is. It's there and it's there for a reason. And, yeah. and it seems to me that taking a more progressive approach to Christianity, it tends to respect the text for what it actually is and apply the text 
in a manner that is conducive to doing the most cultural good possible within whatever culture one finds themselves embedded in with that. Do you think that would be a fair way of, of stating that? And is there more that you would add to that? Yeah. I mean, I would say, I'm, I'm sure there'll be people listening maybe who are checking this whole idea out. Right. And I would say, I think there are a couple things. One is uh, I mentioned before fear and certainty, fear and a desire to protect certainty, keep us from changing. I think also sometimes just getting to the point where we realize, and this was, a little hard for me. I mean, I went through this evolution of faith in my early twenties. It began, but it's like, oh my gosh, I've been wrong. I, I've just held some wrong opinions for a long time now. Do I just double down? <laughs> just say, yeah. say, like, like because I mean, I'll tell you, when you make this transition, there are awkward conversations. There are relationships you're going to lose. There, yeah. there is a cost. If you're a pastor, there's going to be a professional cost. It's going to be an economic cost. I can promise you that's just true. But I'll tell you, out of everything that's happened as a result of this journey for me, my goodness, the freedom I feel and the hope I feel and the inspiration I feel and the absolute love I have for for Jesus, for this tradition and, and for our scripture, it just it keeps growing. So for me, yeah. like being this this whole progressive thing is not the scary thing to be it's a thing that has actually brought me what I tell people who love me and check on me because they've seen something about me on the internet, I'll just say, I am more inspired by, attracted to, and, and desiring to follow Jesus now than I ever have been in my entire life. And isn't that yep. a wonderful place to be, brother? Isn't that just such a good place to be? Yeah. Well, and that that right there is one of the biggest evidences for me that God is working in my life because I'm kinder than I've been. I'm more loving than I've ever been. Um, I, I have a deeper desire to pray, to, to uh, talk to other people, to, I have a more a level of tolerance in a, in a good way. Whereas before I'd cut everybody off who didn't see things just like me, I, I everything about me has changed. I'm not patting myself on the back, but my beliefs didn't change. Uh, or should I say, it wasn't just my beliefs that changed. I actually changed. Mm -hmm. And when you see a change in yourself and not just in your beliefs, because you can be an intellect and change your beliefs all your life and always be the same person. Right. I mean, you know, you're, I, I've known people who are way smarter than I'll ever be, and they have changed their beliefs on all sorts of stuff, but they're still the same person. They never have really had a true transformation with Jesus. When that happens in your life, you know, I mean, there, there's just, there's no denying that because it's not just at the intellectual level anymore because legalism's not, was nothing but an intellectual exercise. That's all it was. And it wasn't even a good one. Uh, it was just self-affirming is all it was, which is ironic because most people concern, um, that they'll, they'll accuse people who are progressive of being nothing more than self-affirming and just want to justify what they want to justify. <laughs> and, and and there's no doubt, look, and I want the audience to know, look, there's no doubt. There's a lot of people who would consider themselves progressives who I think are in the same boat as people who are highly legalistic and they're both just wanting to justify what they want to justify. I, I don't, I don't deny that for a moment, but just as I can't paint with such a broad stroke with, uh, you know, the conservatives, I don't think that the conservatives can do so with the progressives because you, you have people on both sides. And as you pointed out everywhere in between. And so I, I know a lot of people who are cynical, who are progressive. I know a lot of people who are cynical, who are conservative. And so I, I think that people have found God 
in different ways. Cause I also know people who are very uh, joyful and at peace in their life, who I would consider much more legalistic. But I, I think that that's part of God's mystery and the power of God is that God allows you to find him where you're at. And each of us go through different, different stages of transformation. And some of us never reach perhaps what other people reached. I mean, I think that's the whole story of the Old Testament. I mean, you see different people going through different things in the New Testament, different people going through different things. And as you pointed out, Paul, he, he continued to be a transformed individual. He just didn't stop being transformed when he became an apostle. Yep. <laughs> he continued to be transformed and that was proof of his apostleship. So uh, I, I really appreciate this conversation because I hope that this has at least given our audience some food for thought to realize that this isn't just a guy named Josh Scott who threw out the Bible and he doesn't care about scripture and he just want, he just wants to do whatever he wants to do. But this is someone who's very thoughtful with scripture, who spent a lot of time in the word of God. And in my opinion, as you've said earlier, I think that you're right, according to how I view things. And that is that when you have a serious view of scripture, these things are going to come to fruition in one way or another. It's mm -hmm. it's a very oversimplified surface reading of scripture that kind of keeps these things at bay. Yep. Um, so when you really decide you want to take off the floaties and get into the <laughs> to the deep end, then as we talked about, you're going to have to make a decision on what route am I going to go? Am I going to double down like you talked about in your early 20s? I did the same thing for a lot of people do that. They double down. Nope, I'm just going to keep quoting articles uh, at you. And I don't even know if they're good or not, but they agree with my <laughs> preconceived right. position. So here, and, and I love when somebody's like, here, read this, read this as if you haven't studied these things before. Well, they quote the Bible at you and you're like, I've read it. <laughs> I'm yeah, fine. second second John nine, Josh. Second John, I bet you didn't know that one was in there. And <laughs> you know, what, Kevin, what you were just saying reminded me of this. One of my favorite just images in the Bible is the whole the blind man thing. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know who the guy is, but I know that I was blind and I now see. And, and I'm a huge YouTube fan. And Bono has this quote where he says, so, "This is a paraphrase, but you know, for all the I once was blind, but now I see. You know, for most of it is, is I once was blind and now I can see a little bit." And, and yeah, as yeah, I yeah. keep going, I'll, I'll keep being able to, you know, maybe the story of Jesus healing the blind man in two stages where he, he heals him. He's like, what do you see? He's like, I see people walking around like trees. And then he'll like, there's something to that transformation. It isn't just something, uh, you know, a dump truck that's backed up and dumped on us. It is a gradual process over time because ultimately spirit respects the human heart and the human will. And is inviting us and calling us, and but the ball in so many ways is in our court. Absolutely. Well, do you have anything else, any closing remarks that you'd like to make before we uh, get this all wrapped up, brother? Well, I just thanks so much for having me. I love these kind of conversations. I could I could do this for hours on end. Um, this has been a great experience. Uh, if you're interested in reading some of, I'm doing a series right now on my Substack called Biblical Proportions, where I'm just working through some of these ideas of an inerrancy you know, word of God, infallibility. Um, the next one's going to be on inspiration. that will drop later this week, but it's joshscott.substack.com. And um, you can go there. You can subscribe. It's free. And, um, that's, and also, as you mentioned, the lead pastor at Grace Point Church, Grace Point with an E on the end.net. Um, and that's, that's pretty much what I'm doing in the world. Fantastic. I was just about to ask you where people could find you on the internet and you took the initiative on that one, brother. Well, <laughs> On behalf of Kevin and myself and all of our listeners, man, we really appreciate you taking time out of your week to join us. 
like you said, Kevin and I could go on for hours too. And we have before some of our earlier episodes were two and a half approaching three hours. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we really try to make a concerted effort to keep them between 45 minutes to an hour and a half now. And we've gone a little over that time, but that's okay. It's been a great conversation. Josh, thank you so much. Um, we appreciate you very, very much. We appreciate all that you do. We appreciate what you're putting out there. I'll definitely check that out. And we'll include links to uh, some of your things here as well that you just mentioned in our show notes so our listeners can check those things out as well. Um, and before we dismiss, we never want to uh, get off of here without thanking everybody for listening. We, we really appreciate our listeners. We appreciate our audience. It's growing every day. We're growing slowly, but surely every month. And that's because you guys share this podcast with others. Uh, please share this with others. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Facebook. If you do the Facebook thing, give us that five-star review on Apple podcasts and on whatever platform it is you use to consume podcasts. Uh, we thank you all. If you have any questions, any comments, concerns, suggestions, anything at all, drop us a line. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us. The email address is in the show notes. We appreciate all of you. We love all of you, and we will see you all again soon.